When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Bald Move Prestige movie. Uh, today we're talking about the, uh, the biographical documentary, I think is what you call it. Uh, life Itself. It was released in 2014. It celebrates the life of Roger Ebert, who died around 10 years ago on April 4th, 2013. Uh, this movie was produced, directed, uh, assembled by Steve James. Uh, he's the director of Hoop Dreams, among others. He's the ones that uh, Ebert spotlight early on kind of transformed his career. It's based on Roger Ebert's memoir entitled also Life Itself. Um, I, Jim, I, I don't know if you've seen this movie before. I was hoping that maybe you could talk about uh, what your relationship was with Roger Ebert growing up and as a young man and uh, what you thought of the movie and then we'll go from there. Uh, yeah, I have seen this once before. I watched it, oh, maybe five years ago. Definitely not contemporary with when it was released. Um, pretty close. And I remember liking the documentary quite a bit. And second time around, I still like it quite a bit. Uh, it's an insight into a guy who, you know, obviously I only had a relationship with on screen, um, didn't read a lot of newspapers back when he was writing because a I wasn't alive at the beginning, and b I wasn't reading newspapers as a baby. Uh, but boy, yeah, when when he was on television, first with Siskel and then with uh, Richard Roper, I was I became very familiar with his criticism, and I really liked it, although. I, I didn't always appreciate it for what it was. Um, I would say in the last 10 years, I've come to a much greater appreciation, like doing this myself, essentially. Um, and maybe we can talk about that weird wrinkle later on. But doing doing this has given me a greater appreciation for what he actually did. And it's not just telling you which movies are good and bad. Um, and and this documentary kind of gets to the heart of that. I think it it shows that the man is not perfect he's maybe even kind of an asshole at times uh but he he carried himself especially later in life with a great sense of empathy and i think that really comes through in his criticism and it's it's the thing that i've come to appreciate about him yeah um i i have a similar story i've never seen this film before this is the first time i'd seen it um which is strange i I can't I can't believe I didn't watch it like immediately when it came out. Uh, but I discovered Roger Ebert through I talked about my affection for Johnny Carson and how the pinnacle of my experience as a kid was being allowed to stay up and watch Johnny Carson. And they mentioned this in a documentary that uh, Roger Ebert and his partner, Gene Siskel, were frequent guests on uh, the uh, the Johnny Carson show. I remember that night 
when they had Chevy Chase on there and they were kind of clowning him. And, you know, it seemed like as a work shoot now as an, as an adult, but of course they were a lot of fun. And then I started trying to find like, I, I wasn't, so it's like, Oh, I want to try to watch these guys shows, you know? And this was like, I was like 12 years old and I liked it, but like most of the movies they were talking about, I had no frame of reference for, you know, like they were all very adult rated R movies. I wasn't seeing. Sure. So I kind of like it, it It never, you know, I'd always seek out their opinions when there was a movie that I was looking forward to, you know, some kind of uh, family friendly or adventure thing, comedies. But I had a um, a second relationship with Roger when I got the Internet, because suddenly now yeah. I could read his film reviews. I was older. I was watching movies that, you know, were kind of important. Um that, that that he you know put his back into and especially the era when he started writing his blog which is mm-hmm. kind of like the same era where he was in failing health essentially uh that's where like i really grew to appreciate it. and he was kind of like an intellectual foil for me because ebert was one of the first you know very secular humanist uh influences you know on, on me where it's like you know a lot of times he would write a thing about our attitude towards guns and war in society or religion. And it would really challenge me because it was very different from how I felt. Um, hmm. And the thing I really appreciate about Roger Ebert as a critic is not only, you know, I'd agree with about 90% of his reviews. And a lot of times when I'd read his review and I'd see a movie, I'm like, man, he just really nailed that. But almost always the 10% I didn't agree. I could tell by the review that I wasn't going to. You know, he put enough of himself and I built up enough of a mental model of who yeah. Roger Ebert was by the time I was like 20 that he really roast a genre thing. I'm like, well, I'm probably going to like this. It's just, you know, this is Ebert being old or Ebert being silly or vice versa. I knew that if there was a really attractive leading lady, that that was probably worth a, a good whole star towards Jesus. the movie's success <laughs> that you'd have to kind of like, you know, uh, mm-hmm. account for that. Uh, cause, uh, Ebert, uh, Ebert loved the ladies, which is another part of this documentary. Mm-hmm. And I think that the other thing that I really didn't appreciate until I watched this is I think I've kind of taken Ebert's combative style of film criticism as like my model, you know, um, it, I've, I've appreciated it's rare to be in a critical position where you just, oh, you, you, uh, really openly have disdain for some things like I I gather that most people pull back a little bit when they see something they think is terrible uh, and then they, they pull the punches because you never know when you're going to be across the interview table with these people. Mm, yeah. E- Ebert did not do that even for and, and, and did not also spare himself um, for making friends with these people. Like there's this really mm. interesting section with uh, Scorsese where, you know, this guy, you hear Scorsese talk about saved his life at one point, and then he also just shits on the color of money. Uh, I, I just, I don't know. I feel like that that's, I, I thought that that was the thing you're supposed to do. You're supposed to write reviews. You're supposed to challenge. You're supposed to say things with your full chest and all 10 toes planted on the ground when you're criticizing a film. Or and, yeah, uh, at the very least, be honest, you know? Uh, but, don't don't sugarcoat your opinions for external reasons. Tell people what you really think about the movie. But I, like I said, that seems like it's a it's a rare it's just it's just a rare thing for people to do. But uh, it's something sure. I always appreciated him. And I really, often doesn't get your head right. I mean, that's that's the that's the road to ruin. 
if you're a critic yes. sometimes. But there was something about Eber which made him both, you know, able to do that, but also likable enough not to get in trouble for it. Not, not to have people feel like he was personally attacking them. Well, plus he's formidable. Like intellectually, yeah, if you went yeah. to challenge him on something, you better know your shit or he's you're going you're going to get roughed up, man. You're going to get fucked mm-hmm. up and made to look like a fool. So like it's it's always helpful if you can, you know, back up that jo- like, you know, so many times the word holding court came and like I, I always associate that with a you know kind of like a boorish person uh or like mm-hmm. someone that's like doesn't isn't self-aware that they're hog. But like every once in a while you meet like a Truman Capote that can effectively hold court and like the whole room be like is doesn't hold it. He does, they, they wouldn't want anyone else in that position. And it feels like Roger was there 90 percent of the time. But I don't know. He's just a he's just a really unique guy. And it's very rare to see someone that kind of combative. Uh, I saw gladiatorial. I was reading a couple of reviews and they talked about America's most gladiatorial film critic because even the thumbs up, thumbs down. It's it's very, very Coliseum, right? Well, um, I mean, yeah, he, he was making a spectacle of it on television when no one else was. So, of course, yeah, that's going to be what he's remembered for, certainly. And then got a fair amount of uh, jealousy and and I don't know if it's jealousy, but like criticism about that, too, which the, f- the film goes into. Oh, yeah. um, but it's rare to see someone this kind of like, uh, just you know, you hear this words are described as arrogant and insensitive and, you know, this, all that. But also hear people talk about extraordinary tales of like kindness and taking time to uh, like keeping his word like you know if he said he's going to go and see your little movie at cans even it's the last day and there's he's the only one in the audience he's going to do it and and not only that that like if you if you if, if you take that opportunity and press him he's going to use his considerable influence to try to get you over um and for no apparent gain like there wasn't mm-hmm. He didn't have financial stakes in this. There was no like apparent. There's no romantic interest in any of them. He just like wanted to make sure that people were exposed to uh, new film talent. Um, yeah, I, I think yeah. above all, the one thing you can say about him, uh, whether you like him or not, is he truly did love film. Yes. Loved as an art form. Yes. Um, and I think that came across in everything he did, whether he was, you know, the the young brash uh out to prove himself Roger Ebert who would probably shit on you and make you look like a fool for the slightest uh you know bit of pushback or whether he was what I view as like his his older more mature more mellowed and empathetic self uh that's the one thing that always came through is he loved cinema and the other like this, so this film's about four things I think it's about his three great loves um well four i mean maybe four great loves himself cinema uh the complicated relationship he had with his partner gene although i do think that turned to genuine love at the end and his wife Chaz, who Mm -hmm. their relationship just seems utterly admirable and wonderful and the way that he embraced her family and the way her family embraced him seems just uh i don't know just just made me melt um i wept a lot in the last third of this movie and the fourth the fourth pillar is his kind of unflinching look at what Roger Eber ended up at at the end. And these some of these things were shocking to me because, like, you know, I read, you know, in his blog that he didn't have a jaw and, you know, that he you know, that his his um, f- face was kind of shocking. 
Um, but until he died, he kind of kept a lot of that stuff private. You know, that he would, you know, when he'd be seen in public, he'd be wrapped up like the phantom, like, you know, bandages from the nose down. You'd always see his expressive eyes. He had a very expressive face towards the end. Um, but like, yeah, seeing some of the things he had to deal with just on a day by day basis um, was uh, kind of inspiring the way that he could go through those things and still have a joy and zest for life. And that's the stuff I remember the most. Like, I think some of his best writing, the essays he did about, you know, when he was on death's door, his um, leave of presence when, you know, mm-hmm. the, the po- posthumous um, article that he that was released when he died um his grappling with his own mortality and what he thought about it and how he thought of life and life well lived uh it's, I, it's this stuff has always inspired me and it was things i was going through in my early 30s because i was leaving this religious support that i never had to think about my mortality never had to think about the idea of the end of the continuity of my experience and you know as i was kind of like jesus christ what do i believe in now there was roger like actively dying and setting this just courageous example of of dignity and grace in the worst circumstance and it was really meaningful to me no i look at um this documentary and i see uh an honest portrayal of a complicated man and i think that's the best thing i can say about it is it does not pull its punches much like roger himself and in the end, I think you come away with a greater appreciation for him because of that. Like when I see him, you know, writing notes to his wife that say, kill me at times because he's in such pain. And then I look at the way he's facing this illness in other moments. I'm like, this is an incredibly brave man. I don't know that I, in his position, would have the ability to do what he's doing. And it's, it's yeah. extremely impressive. And put yourself in a position of Chaz finding that note that he doesn't intend her to find. Oh, I and mean, like, what does this mean? And, you know, she clearly loves him so much. conversation about and... his actual death, that that she tells us that story at the end. That's heartbreaking. It's, yeah. No, th- th- those are both incredibly brave people going through the worst of circumstances and somehow holding it together. I thought that... Um... This isn't a perfect film, uh, and maybe that's it's it's such a great encapsulation of life itself. I think it's a messy film. I think that this is intended to be a production that was comprehensive and definitive and well planned out. And Roger wanted to architect this before he died, and unfortunately, he had a medical crisis that he died in the middle of the production of this. Mm-hmm. And it feels like it. It feels like there's a couple of alleys that the filmmaker Steve James starts to explore. And then you get like a half fleshed out vision of like what the hell he was trying to get at. And then it just skips, you're, you know, back at the hospital, uh, seeing Roger Ebert get his trachea irrigated and, you know, I failing like to this climb. about the documentary. I, I felt like this was intentional. I felt like the whiplash you get of him, you know, the, the stories of. Uh, about him kind of being an asshole and the behind the scenes stuff on at the movies where they're like him and Cisco are going back and forth with each other, calling each other assholes, insulting each other, intentionally trying to this get each other's like go. When Jim and I yeah. are saying, fuck you, fuck you. It's like they, there no. was some fucking malice and acid behind it. Obviously, obviously. And then we cut to Roger doing his physical therapy at the end of his life. Right. And it's like this whiplash of boy, this guy's an asshole boy. This guy is really brave. I felt like it was intentional. That's the, the messiness of, of life itself. Like you said, it's, mm-hmm. I, I guess I didn't view it as dead ends. I viewed it as 
juxtapositions to show us the full nature of this person. Well, see, that's the thing is like, I, I don't know that's intentional. I think it's something that they discovered with the half-finished nature of it, and they leaned into they didn't it. They set out I, to make that, but I that's was actually, what they could salvage what, from. What my full thought was, I think they were going to make like a video log compa- um, thing to his life itself, a memoir, which is very tidy and orderly, and it goes down. It is, And mm-hmm. because they weren't able to do that, they did what they could. And I think that's, you know, like I said, that thing that I said is is messy. That's what life is like, you know? And when, you gotcha. know, it's like, have you ever thought about the scope of your life? You ever look back and be like, God, I've been alive for 40 years. And like, when I do that, I never, nothing ever comes sequentially. It's always just like little bits and pieces of like, well, here's me and a teenager and here's what's this and here's a young and then I went through this. And it's like, it's, it mm-hmm. is very fractured and, and disorderly and you kind of, and it jumps around that makes connections that like, oh, this reminds me of this and oh, this reminds me of this. And that's what I felt like that it was all very, you know, I was like, oh, God, well, you just went away from Roger. Eber. Like Gene Siskel scared to death that Roger is going to leave him. And then you're going to go away like, you know, it's like that feels very messy and unfinished. But then 20 minutes later, you come back and they'd say this add another layer and they add another layer. And I, yeah, it's again, I, I can't say the film is perfect, but sure, I think sure. it's such a great. Such a great insight to his life. And there's a lot of things where, like, I felt like I had a pretty good handle on Ebert post, like, 2000. But, like, a lot, or even post-1990. But, like, some of that early stuff where it was in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, I had no mm. idea who this man was. Like, I, I'd always heard that he's an infamous boob hound and ladies man uh, to to mm-hmm. greater little effect. But, like, to actually see his friends talking, I'm like, oh, my God, his taste in women, the crazy people he would bring in. And they were all... Like, in, you know, it's insane or gold diggers and they're all under like that kind of really wild. And I had no idea. I had no appreciation for what it meant to work at the Sun Times versus the Herald. You yeah, know, yeah, like way. like like the the, the the demographics and the the politics. And it's like kind of like New York Times versus Wall Street Journal, you know, um, yeah. and how Gene was the Yale educated ivory tower. Mm-hmm. You know, figurehead for that thing that Ebert already felt was superfluous. He's like, I, I'm the only movie re- reviewer that anyone would ever need. What the fuck do we have two in this whole city for? And you got this Yale asshole. Like, ah, uh, I, I just like I, I appreciate so much more depth of this. And like, it's always like, I was wondering, like, how the hell did this guy end up making like Beyond Valley of the Dolls with this like <laughs> super exploited? Everybody's like, asking that question. Yeah. Shit posting trauma level director. And this film kind of answers it, you know, because it was an adventure. And sure. there was, yeah. you know, there was like he could do whatever he wanted to take the piss of Hollywood. And and uh, but like the balls of a critic at that age to make a movie and and hang your ass out there that that wide and open is is insane the other thing i came away with this film is a laundry list of things i have to see and that beyond the valley of the (laughs) dolls is one of them like yeah there are like 10 names of movies in my notes that i want to go watch because of his yeah the film the ingar bergman film that he wanted the, the pulitzer for the pulitzer uh uh-huh. I've never seen that film. I haven't seen Howard any Bergman's films except for like what the Seventh Seal, uh, whatever the one where um, the night the night that, that plays death uh, plays plays for his life a game of chess with death. Um, 
I, yeah, just like tons of these movies that um, that they reference are kind of like signposts in, in Ebert's career. It's like, yeah, I need to I need to read this. But mm-hmm. uh, we'll be right back with more Bald Move after this brief pause. And now back with more Bald Move. Where I guess I mean, there's not really a spoiler section of this. This is a biographical biographical film about a man's life. Um, I read tons and tons of reviews from people who were his best friends and confidants to people who were colleagues, the, you know, people who um, were kind of like me and Jim, younger people who kind of like knew him by reputation, uh, reading, reviewing this film. And like, I, the one thing I didn't see is someone say, this is bullshit. It seems like Mm -hmm. everyone agrees that you are going to get a pretty good idea of who Roger Ebert is. And, 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 and especially a man who tried very hard to live as transparently as possible for the last 10 years of his life. Cause he thought it was important. Mm Mm-hmm. Can we? Maybe? I, I think in doing so, he inspired a lot of people. I mean, you've talked about how he inspired you. Certainly, he's inspired me. And I think at large, sort of in a more general way, he opened a lot of doors for people to do what we're doing now, specifically us. Um, what, one of the things that I have made a core tenant of my criticism for what it is, it's nothing close to Ebert's, but I always try and be honest. And I think I get that in part from watching him at the movies unafraid to say when he thinks something is bullshit, something is bad, something is amazing, even in the face of everybody else disagreeing. I think without that, I without that, we certainly wouldn't have the success that we have had. Mm -hmm. And I think at large, he opened the doors for people who were less connected, less moneyed. Um, to be able to come in here and do what he was doing on any kind of scale. And I don't know if that's inevitable. That would have happened when the internet happened and everybody had a blog Mm. and it would have just happened regardless. But he, back in a time when you couldn't just pick up a microphone and throw your voice out there on the internet, he was doing the kind of criticism that I like to think we're doing here. Mm Mm-hmm. Just w- yeah. way more intelligent. <laughs> yeah, and I've I've got like my list of like I think the masculine heroes I've always looked up to. You talk about the you know the Bob Rosses, the the Lavar Burtons, the Mister Rogers. Um, Ebert's not that, but he might be like a personal antihero of mine because he does have mm-hmm. that way of like he wouldn't just say like a film was bad, but he would go after like the filmmakers philosophies and like their cynicism and their greed and their lack of curiosity and their mm-hmm. lack of context and historicity. And, you know, he'd kind of make it personal, um, which I think is cool. And the other thing that I, there, I guess if I put my my finger on something is that and I appreciate this is his background now is that when Ebert would tackle the difficult subject of the day, it wasn't from a perspective of someone who grew up believing it 100% that way. It came from a perspective of someone who like had earned beliefs through personal education experience, what I'm talking about, things like uh, various equalities, sexual, gender, racial, economic. You know, he wouldn't talk like a New York Times film critic would. He would mm-hmm. like... Like, like, because the New York Times film critic, whenever I'd read it as a conservative person and they would rail on something, it was just like, I just didn't, I didn't feel like, I felt like um, they weren't even acknowledging there was an other side of the argument. When Ebert would write mm-hmm. about it, 
he like always would write it from like the second step in the dance where it's like, I understand that like this is how society feels about it. And I understand how this is how some parts of society feel about it. This is the filmmaker's perspective. And it's hard for you to understand because X, Y and Z. But really, if you like there's something the way he would talk about, not just like the film angles and stuff, but like the internal lives of the people and their feelings and that, you know, like his theory that film is an empathy engine. Um, he would take the time to explain, you know, not just like whole mm-hmm. empathy is being generated, but how and why inside him. And since he was kind of like, you know, uh, a blue collar middle or working class, uh, uh, blue. Co- uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a, a Midwestern blue collar working class guy at heart. Like a lot of that stuff made sense to me in a way that it wouldn't if, you know, Gene Siskel said, said the exact same thing. Sure. Um, and like, yeah, I think I, that's the other thing that I try to do is I try not to ever preachy. Well, I probably do. Um, I try to always like acknowledge the other side and try to like get them around the what I see is the the circuit impedance for for like empathy <laughs> to flow, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. And I, I, I never try to talk down to people. And I think I, I in some ways get that from him because he it whenever he would speak about a film in terms that, you know, maybe didn't seem as working class, uh, he would always, he would always picture a level. Like I'm not talking down to you. I'm raising you up. You know, it's, it's, I I'm here to help guide you through this, not to make you feel like you're an idiot for not agreeing with my opinion, at least in his reviews. I'm sure in person, if you got on his bad side, he would try to tear you down. It seemed like early in life, that's mm. kind of who he was. Um, but and he never suffered fools gladly. They had a couple stories of right, like his right. cinematis interruptus when somebody would, mm-hmm. you know, anyone, anyone could stop the film, but God damn it, you better have something to say because if you're wasting people's time <laughs> right. or questioning the villain, like he would just slice you up, dude. Yeah, this thing's going to be five hours long anyway. We don't need idiots commenting right. about right. nothing. Yeah. I don't need anyone just to eat, wanting to hear the sound of their own voice. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't know. His, he always felt very generous with his empathy, and I think that came across in his stuff. It's something that I've... Because, uh, like, one of my... Every time I do a classic review or, like, a histor- you know, um, a retro review, whatever we call them, um, the finishing step that I always do. So I always watch the thing. I get my notes and do my research, blah, blah, blah. The final step I do before we record is I go to rogerebert.com and I look up his review archive and I see what Roger thought about it. And I, mm-hmm. and like, I kind of score myself where, you know, I, I get really proud when he points out something that I, that I caught. And it's always interesting when he disagrees. And like, I was like, Oh man, why did, you know, drill into like, why did he feel it differently? And it's always sad Cause I never look at the dates and it's always sad. Cause when you get into 2013, 2014, certainly 2015, the archives just stop. And there's like, mm-hmm. a, you know, we've, we've gone through a decade of that Ebert. And when I go to look up something, Oh, I can't wait to see what Ebert thought about that. And like, Oh shit. This movie was in two, this was a 2015, 2016 movie. He's, I'm not going to know what he thought about it. Yeah. Uh, and I always get a little sad when those, when those gaps uh, happen. And I still have a giant Roger Ebert size gap in my critical repertoire because I have still not found a film critic that I like and trust as much as Roger Ebert. And every time I say that, I get dozens of recommendations of, oh, Mountain mm-hmm. Zeller Zeiss this. And, 
you know, uh, Wesley Morris, that. And I like those guys and I do read. But mm-hmm. like I read RogerEbert.com every fucking Friday. Like I, I'd, I'd get to work early and I or on my first bathroom break, I would print it out and, t- <laughs> and, and read it because like I just want to know what he thought. And when you start doing the blogs, the same. And I, there's nobody now on TV. I got Alan Seppenwall. Thank God. Uh, but mm-hmm. on movies like I, I kind of like Rotten Tomato meta filter type aggregates because there's just nobody that I I don't think anyone does it like Roger Ebert does right now or did yeah. it. No, I'm with you. Um, I, I do like the the reviews coming from Roger Ebert's website. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that is is a bit of a lasting legacy that he did give us, but. Yeah, do I have the same kind of connection and affection for those writers? No, no, I don't. Probably because I never saw them as a kid on television arguing about my favorite movies. You know, yeah, that that went a long way when the, when they were the only voice out there, and you got to put a put a face to the voice too, or a face to the to the writing. I think that helped a lot. The other thing I did, I never knew about Ebert uh, until yesterday when I when I watched the film is his successful battle against alcoholism. And it's so funny because Mm -hmm. in the first, I don't know, third of the film where they're going into his early days when he was really making his bones um, and they talk about him going to the bar every night and shutting the place down at three or four o'clock in the morning and like the wild stories they talk about, you know, the, the drugs and the intense arguments and the, the 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 weird personalities and stuff. And it's like, God, this does not feel like Ebert that I know. And then it's like, oh, he was a raging alcoholic during this time. Mm-hmm. And that the other thing that I thought was amazing is that he because I've always wondered, like, you know, where. Yeah, I've always heard Chaz, his wife, and like, you know, how amazing she was and how much, uh, you know, it, it, it like he just like a instant family for him that he, he, he never really had one. He's an only only child. Dad died early. Um, I was like, man, how did these people end up together? How'd they meet? You know, um, and they met in AA. And mm-hmm. that was like there's so many aha moments of like understanding how Ebert came to me in his 50s. And, you know, he died, I think, at 69. I, I, you know, I was like a really big fan for about 15 years. Um, So many like aha moments like that where uh, and I go back and I as soon as I found that out, I had to go back and reread like his leaving Las Vegas uh, review again. And like uh, Hmm. the way he and it's like. Was he ever public with that or did that come out posthumously? I don't because like know. he never he never cited it in the review of leaving Las Vegas, which I thought was uh, astounding that he had that immense personal experience and he didn't he didn't cite it at all. Yeah, and there are a few moments in this documentary where you know he's meeting with very famous people and they're saying, "Yeah, we should go, you know, get a drink together," and then making jokes about that as if they did not know, um, because it would be probably inappropriate to say that in front of someone you knew was an alcoholic sure, uh, sure. <laughs> so yeah it, it i definitely don't think it was out there too much in the public and you know he his alcoholism pretty much ended he says like 1979 or something right so he, he says he never took another drink after that um and it had been like 30 years at that point right 40 years almost um i think that blog is maybe his coming out you know it's possible talking yeah. about 
you know, no long, you know, like do you not miss eating or drinking and stuff like that? And I, I remember that. Uh, so it's like weird that I guess I'd forget um, because he, he must have talked about it and then I'd forgotten it. Um, but yeah, I, was, I thought that was kind of stunning. That was a, a big, uh, like I said, aha moment. What another aha moment for me was um, looking at his parents um, mm. and the way that they were supportive of him. And the thing that really struck me is what they say about like, oh, he would learn a new word and he'd come into the kitchen and he'd use it in a sentence and his parents would applaud him. And I think part of his intellectual brilliance comes from that nurturing environment, right? Where they mm -hmm. encouraged him because you can tell, I mean, you look at the, the, one of the first things they do in this movie is talk about him at 21 years old being uh, a film critic for, I think it's the Chicago Sun-Times. Um, or what? No, it's he's the writing, Illinois University. It was his college newspaper. University of Illinois. The chief editor there. Uh, and he's quoting Martin Luther King. He's quoting Macbeth, right? He's clearly extremely well read in this environment of encouragement, of bettering yourself, of increasing your vocabulary, of continued learning, I think is part of what gave him those, what fostered those natural abilities into full-blown uh, skills, you know, and assets. Yeah, and coming of age in that environment, you know, like you think about, he probably firsthand saw that disastrous Democ uh, Democratic National Convention, Republican National Convention oh, that yeah. happened in Chicago and uh, the way he wrote at age 21, 22, like you said, about, um, you know, the, the issues of his time where like mm -hmm. a lot of people were trying to find the try to be the voice of reason in between you know, the insane racist whites and the the the, the black uh, civil rights leaders who are maybe pushing too hard and maybe not being. And he's just coming out and being like, yeah, this is just an ugly part of America. This is this is the blood that's crying out from the ground. And it's just going to get, you know, the, the more we try to put our fingers in our ears the and, and ignore it, the louder it's going to get. And we need to like meet these challenges head on and try to make things right like that is of course it's you know i mean it's also a voice of a young person but like that's still uh yeah but a, a much older young person than he should have been yeah right? like a much more mature person at least intellectually um and he came from a blue collar background right his like his dad was an electrician um i forget what his mom was doing i did uh, too yeah but clearly they they treated him like they they fostered in him some kind of value in education and learning and i think that really prepared him for the rest of his life oh, I, i've seen you could imagine him coming out of that scenario just being a total shitbag you know and using maybe what natural intelligence he had to to make other people feel bad about themselves, to to rail against uh, a lot of social progress and stuff. Um, but he came out the other side, I think, because of his parents, uh, much better for it. Well, yeah, and I, I was thinking that same thing. He's like, you know, like where does this pudgy, schlubby kid get all this boundless self confidence and self assuredness from? And it's pretty obvious it's from his family. Like his family. Mm -hmm. 
just propped him up and gassed him up, which can be good and bad. But like I I've often wondered, like, you know, how do people get to be extroverts, introverts? And is it as simple as like the first time you go up to a kid in the playground and be like, hey, you want to play with me? And like the kids like, yeah, sure, let's play. And you have a good time versus like, Mm -hmm. oh, get away from me. It's like, does that like just set you from here on out? But like Roger, you know, no one had told him, like, who the fuck are you? That from this, your background and looking like the way, how, how, how are you talking this way and picking these fights like you do? Like, he never, and that's the other thing Chaz said too, that, that she was attracted to him is like, you know, like when they first got together, he was as heavy as he ever was. And he never, that's the other mm-hmm. funny thing is like him and his friend arguing about who was more cosmopolitan. They would have these uh, like raging fights about like, Roger, you don't even speak a language other than English. I know how to order the double Johnny johnny black uh johnny walker black in any bar and and like then one of the other friends is like they showed his black and white photo of these guys who look like extras from the jim henson or jim henson workshop like they're just a bunch (laughs) of fat no haircut having coke bottle glasses no riz at all doofuses and they're arguing about which of them is more you know which one of them is more james bond but something Mm -hmm. that Chaz said is that she met him. He's this he's this he's this big dude. Uh, he's kind of abrasive. He doesn't have any sense of style, but he n- did not realize that. And Ro- Roger Ebert's mm-hmm. mind, he was a sexy, desirable person, bewildered that he was never able to find a connection with somebody. And he found that with uh, with with Chaz and. I, like I said, I was really moved by almost every part of their their story. Um, yeah, yeah. There's this whole chapter where it's like right before Ebert was robbed of his voice through this cancer um, that he was like maturing in this elder statesman of the craft. And he had he had gone to this weird hippie thing, this this conference on world affairs uh, for his whole life for 30 years. And and he had had the cinematis interruptus that the, his famous series on films where he would show a film and anyone could say stop and the, they would stop the film and you talk about it. And, you know, you mentioned take five, six hours to work through it, but it's just like everyone that went to it. It's just like, my God, it's this riveting thing on film. And right as he was like getting going on that and, and like, again, and, and maturing in that elder statesman role, uh, there's this really sad scene where he they they just talked for five minutes about how much he loved this and like different f- clips of him you know doing this and that and then you know I think it was like a 32 years he wrote he tried to do it one year with his electronic voice and all that and he said it took like ten times of work and it just wasn't any fun and his line that the conference on world affairs runs on speech and I find that I'm out of gas and. Did you know that most of the voiceovers of this movie were done by a professional like impersonator? Yeah, the guy they got is incredible. He's incredible. Almost exactly like him. When he read that blog entry with Eber, like with Eber's voice and a kind of like a sad resigned inflection, it was Mm -hmm. really moving because it's like I am. I'm not mentally unable to 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 participate in this, but physically I'm unable. Mm -hmm. And how he never let that frustration get to him is and then like there's signs at the end of his life he was getting pretty frustrated and fed up and that's what i was gonna say you know five like what was it five weeks after some of these scenes he was dead um but like he i i okay that's one thing that like he just learned a new found sense of patience and the guy i remember one thing where uh, he was writing about how he had adapted to being this big talker, this big communicator, and now he doesn't be able to talk. And he's like, 
he talks about this experience about like being the guy who used to be the center of the conversation one's directing the flow it's all going through him and now it's like you know he tried to keep up with notes but like he said i i find myself more and more content just kind of lay back with a smile and see the dance around me you know sure like yeah, i'm content have i have this platform this blog um and 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 this is the thing that I that I get my voice out and and it's like he learned patience and the space for other people mm-hmm. because he could no longer fill it himself. Yeah, no, you would you would have to in that situation. And yeah, I, do, I, I think the movie does um, a fairly good job of showing you the moments of of vulnerability, I guess, and 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 breakdown in whatever persona he might have been like trying to deliver to both on screen in this documentary, but to the people around him as well. Cause you know, you have to imagine a man in his situation is not going to be all roses, no matter how strong they are, no matter how much patience they've learned over the course of their illness. Um, and, and it's hard to blame him for that, you know? Yeah. But, but I like that, that they... it's in the documentary because it, it, I think the, the documentary runs the risk of perhaps inflating him too much um, mm-hmm. making him out to be something more than he actually is. But these moments that they show of vulnerability and frustration and impatience and kind of asshole behavior really reground him, take, take him from like some mythical figure to a human being. And I think that's so important because that's probably what he would want to be seen as. Yeah, and how he insisted on that. Like, I want, like, you know, it's it's a choice to show him getting his irrigations. It's a choice to show him, Mm -hmm. you know, like, insist on having music playing, his favorite song playing during what, because, like, it seems like when you're in those physical conditions, sometimes you can get dehumanized, where it's like, you are a human being, but you're also a chore to people. You know, you literally are. It's like, you, it's something I, he's, Roger's got to be done this, he's got to do that, I got to irrigate this, and I got to make sure I squeeze his food pouch on his throat at this time. And, you know, like, he he can't communicate. Like, you you know, what is he flailing his arms around? Why is he, why is he doing this when he's supposed to be doing this? It's like, oh, he's hooking up his speakers. So, cause like, it it does seem like, it, it really made it look like he's unpleasant. Like, it's like a, like you, it, it it makes it, Like, like that, that irrigation process, like he calls the suction. Um, it seems like you're being waterboarded and you have to do it several times a day. And like, yeah, it seems terrible to keep doing that for 10 years and then not lose your kind of zest for life is remarkable. Mm-hmm. And it does seem like Chaz had a lot to do with that because his instinct was, oh, my God, look at me. I'm the phantom of the fucking opera. I just want to shrink back from public life. And I don't like, you know, and she's like. Yes, you do have to maybe guard yourself in certain ways, but people are still interested in what you have to say and you still have a lot of things that are interesting and her kind of like driving to make sure that he still gets out in public and he still has like her goal was that every day he'd have something to look forward to. Um, you know, and the other thing is like, uh, you know, then I think uh, Roger, uh, I, I wonder if Roger would be disappointed that no one pointed us out because I feel like Roger would have, but like, when I was watching this, I'm like, this man, it's great that he's able to do this, but it's only because he's super wealthy and he has like the best insurance in the world that like, you know, and it's like, I think that Roger would probably say if he was watching this review, it's like, man, wouldn't it be awesome if everyone had, you know, the ability to live this, that not everyone has the ability to yeah, die with blessed. dignity like this. Mm-hmm. I, I think he yeah. would be the first to acknowledge it. Yeah. And uh, he'd probably be first to encourage us to work work towards a tomorrow where everyone can can have this kind of uh, care. 
But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I just like the fact that she was like uh, a pusher in the best way, you know. But also, yeah, yeah. they have a moment. They have a they have a Bill and Frank moment where he is ready to go, and she. And 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 not just ready to go, but like he understands what this metastasized cancer diagnosis means in the scope of where he's at in his life. You know, mm. like she is still in denial. It's like, well, you know, they said you were gonna die ten years ago. There was like three or four times that they you were moments from death. And like and he's like, and I, I loved it when they they pointed the camera back to him and he's did he just gives this expression. He's got no, he's missing half of his face, but with the shoulders and a shrug and kind of his eyes, he's like, yeah, listen, this, listen, this crazy lady that thinks that I've got like more mm-hmm. than six months in me. Um, and it was hard for her to like, like that, like that. Um, God, I, I also kept on thinking, I wish I'd seen this movie like a year or two ago because I've, I've gone through a couple rounds of like death myself. And mm-hmm. I feel like some we don't talk enough about this country is like what it looks like and the feelings that we have and, you know, what feelings are valid and what feelings are selfish. And because Chaz had that moment where he was coding on the table and she told him, like, we'll get the paddles out. Let's get this going. And they're like, well, that's the doctors mm-hmm. and nurses like, no, we can't do that. That's not what she wants. And. The way she tells it, she thought that she could have just with sheer force of will and as Roger Ebert's <laughs> wife and with the money. And it's like she could have probably bullied those people into bringing him back. But and this is this is a phrase that's going to that's going to stick with me for a while. Uh, a wind of peace. The something mm-hmm. that Roger Ebert talks about, like sometimes when like, you know, you get the stillness of like a d- difficult decision, but you come to peace with it. Came over her and she's like, no, I can't do it. But like. You know, if you if you don't think about that moment before it comes, I feel like a lot of people do the wrong thing, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's it's incredible how strong and brave they both were through all of that. And right down to like that picture in the S on the cover of Esquire, right? Where he came out for the first time with his new face. Yes. Um, boy, I... I cannot imagine the the strength and then the, the calm the the I, I don't even know what to call it but the the strength it requires to reveal yourself in that it's way. It's brave. It's brave. Especially yeah, yeah. since to that time 100%. he had still all the pictures on his site it was still Roger Ebert from at the you know the the last year of at the movies he was a whole healthy individual. yeah he, he was hiding it probably because he was uh ashamed and scared and like you know all of those things but at some point i mean he must have experienced that wind of peace and come out and just mm-hmm. said this is me now you know yeah and that's something he also wrote it's the powerful. irony they didn't they talk talk they didn't talk about this in the film but he mentioned it in one of his blog posts that he found it particularly ironic because he had always just took his health for granted you know he was with drinking <laughs> and eating yeah. and just his lifestyle he was profoundly unhealthy mm-hmm. and like two or three years before the cancer hit him he'd actually lost a shit ton of weight and was starting to like try to be active because his goal mm-hmm. was like i've got these grandkids now and i don't want to be this like old fat dude that can't go and go on walks with my you know and i to go with the cans and all or can and all that stuff Mm-hmm. And the one, one of the ironies of his life is right when he started taking his health seriously, it was utterly taken from him. Yeah. You know, uh, 
And it was like a whole process too. Like uh, they 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 go over this in, in quick fashion a film, but if you went through it contemporaneously, it's like he had these surgeries, and it's like okay, and I had some more surgeries, and ah, they had to disconnect my vocal cords, but it's only going to be for a couple months until I'm, and then they're going to reconnect it, and they're going to do all, and like he had two or three attempts to try to reconstruct his face and his jaw, and and and, and he was so hopeful each time, and every single time there was some post op infection, they had to redo it, and he wound up worse than he was before, mm-hmm. and it's just getting worse, and like finally he and it seemed like there was a part of his life where he's like you know i'm done with all this he was uh, they they mm-hmm. talked they touched on this in the movie too that there was you know back in 2013 the infancy of this uh what we'd call um you know deep fakes where they'd have these vocal engines where you could feed it you know hours of someone's voice and of course ebert had 30 years of him talking on film and deep and they were really close to getting uh, a dead on like Roger Ebert electronic voice. And midway through the project, he's like, I don't want to do this. Like, I actually have gotten used to the um, uh, the Stephen Hawking voice. And I, sure. I that's kind of like how that's that's my voice now. And this other thing seems kind of ghoulish and weird. Hmm. And uh I've often wondered what would what would Roger Ebert's life been like if he was like born 20 years before, like before per, p, before the Internet, like if this cancer thing happened to him in the early yeah. 90s, is he able to gut it out as well as he did without because like that outlet was everything to him in the, the final third of the documentary. Like it's what yeah, kept I mean, him I'd- going. There's no reason he couldn't still written for newspapers and magazines and stuff, True. you know, in print. True. But but it gave him a connection directly to people. And I think like something about him, I think thrived on that. Um, the, the papers were that for him before, but this was much more direct, right? People coming to your website, people reading your work directly on your own blog. I don't know. There's something a little romantic about that. Plus he, he was able to get, you know, um, he was able to write a lot more about a lot more subjects, you know, right. if he was fighting for vertical inches in the sun times, but he was able to like really do multiple editorials and long form thought mm-hmm. pieces and stuff that I don't know that, uh, but I don't know, like back in the nineties, if, if that's the thing is like, Roger is a guy who I wouldn't have counted out. Like, you know, if he does a zine right. or he, you know, like does, cause also obviously the sun times loved him too. Like mm-hmm. I thought that was really moving that and it never occurred to me that like Chicago, cause I'm from, you know, Mooresville, Indiana, Chicago would be seen as like the second tier city that you would want to try to escape from as a writer to go to LA or to New York sure. times or something like that. And the fact that he was hardcore courted. Like mm-hmm. right as like he's still working on his rookie contract and he wins the Super Bowl, the Pulitzer, like one of the first ones for film criticism and like what, 30, 40, 50 years. I can't remember what it was. And no, like everyone it, came. It, so that, that's one thing I, I looked this up. The Pulitzer for criticism had only been given for six years. He was the first film critic to win it because like, oh, it was brand <laughs> okay. new. Like, OK, they made that out to say, be. Okay. It, they make it out to be a huge achievement. and It, it is. Sure. The weird thing to me was I was looking through the list of winners and there was uh, a bunch of TV film critic or TV critics rather uh, even before him that had won it. And I don't necessarily think there's a huge distinction, but he was technically the first film critic to win it. And 
after him, no other film critic won it until like 2005. So there was a good like 40 years, 30 year run uh, where he was the only film critic who had won it. So it's still a massive achievement. I'm just saying like, yeah. it wasn't like, oh, this is an institution from like 1920 or something. And yeah. But he, uh, they, they, they talk about like that he was pursued by the New York Times and LA Times and the Washington Post and they tried to get him and he, like the, the, he dismissed it all. I was like, ah, I don't want to learn new streets. Like he just loved Chicago. He loved the Sun Times and he was fiercely loyal to them. Sure. And I feel like the Sun Times had that loyalty back. Like they did a whole special issue when he died. Um, they obviously, you know, they were sending him to uh, can every year and, you know, letting him do his idiosyncratic projects and giving him leave of absences to shoot away films from, with Russ Myers and get away from Siskel for a week or two. Yeah. Get away from Siskel, the <laughs> tyranny month, of, of Siskel. Um, uh-huh. Boy, I found out a lot about Gene Siskel. I didn't know. Did you, yeah, me you too. know his Hugh Hefner stories? I did not know he was spending time in the grotto with uh, naked playmates. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, and starlets and all kind of like mm-hmm. I had that bloom because if anyone was going to be like make a little nest in Hugh Hefner's bed, I thought it would have been Roger. Yeah, right. And you wonder if that would have been like a sticking point and they're like, this is all Roger I ever bet. wants and this the Yale college boy is the one that gets to do the frat house stuff and Mm-hmm. You know, I think I thought that was and plus it's just it's super fucking funny to see like a what a late 20s gene with like this <laughs> giant handlebar mustache and these speedos, uh, uh-huh. you know, standing in like this is I don't know, man, it's just really knowing who this guy turned into. It's just it's just really it's really funny, really funny juxtaposition. Totally. Uh, I do wonder if, you know, maybe Roger. Because Gene Siskel died of brain cancer. He had he had a bunch of brain tumors that I, I don't know if it wasn't made totally clear if he just chose not to have them try to operate or if they were just inoperable and there was nothing they could really do. Um, but they make it clear that like Siskel wanted to spend the last moments of his life enjoying them with the people he loved and he didn't want them to know how sick he was. And so he didn't tell Roger. He didn't tell his kids. It's uh, easier to say who he did tell his wife, right. both of their parents. And I think there's one other person, everyone else. No. Yeah. And so Roger didn't know about this. And I look back on some of these clips where he's sort of like making fun of the way that Siskel is speaking. And I'm like, knowing now what, you know, I wonder if Roger felt bad about some of that stuff. Cause he has to imagine that was affecting him. Right. It seems devastating. Cause like, I understand why he did that. But like I always in fact, I thought a lot about you when I was watching this like, God, what? Because like these Gene was like 47 years old. Like I I kept on thinking like, Jesus, what if like in five to six years, like Jim were going to die or God help? What if like I die next year? Like what what would that be like? And it made me really sad. And I thought about like, you know, what? What I would do if if you died of cancer, I didn't even know it. It's just like you're in the hospital and you're dead. And like I find out like, oh, yeah, he's been sick for like a year. And I'm like, right. you know, like I don't know that Roger and Ebert were best. But I kind of think they were best friends at the end. Like maybe at the tail end. Yeah, at the very it's end, hard to say. But it was a blow to Ebert. He took yeah. it really personally. 
you know, that like I thought mm -hmm. we were this kind of relationship and I guess we weren't. And it was a huge influence on how he dealt with his cancer because he's like, I don't want any down to my fans. I don't want anyone like to, to be put in that position. So like I said, I understand yeah, Gene's rough. decision, um, especially yeah, yeah. when it comes to his kids. Like that made a lot of mm -hmm. sense. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's the best decision, but shit, it's his and he made it. Um, but wow. Yeah, I can't I can't even imagine uh, being shut out of something like that. If you you know, especially how long they had spent together and how they went through this mm -hmm. whole because I do think they genuinely hated each other to begin with. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's like yeah. like it was shocking to see them recording those promos and uh -huh. like every single time like because you know we record promos we fuck up all the time i'm trying to think of like every single time one of us <laughs> fucked up we just like put all these stakes on who we're in this oh fucking recording booth for 30 seconds because of you and then like don't you know you fucking idiot you're gonna mispronounce something next and now you're gonna be the big asshole right and it's right. just like what are you guys doing what are it's you it was a competition. I, I, man, competition can be extremely toxic. And for them, it was a battle of egos. It was a battle of, uh, you know, there were inferiority complexes all around, right? You know, you see Roger wanted to go to an Ivy League school. He wanted to go to Harvard, wasn't able to because of his family's background and lack of money. And then you got Gene Siskel, the guy working for the bigger newspaper, the guy with the philosophy degree from Yale comes mm -hmm. in and starts horning in on his territory. Right. There's going to be a little bit of bad blood there. And then from the other side, you, you've got this highly educated man who is traveling around the world with Hugh Hefner, and he's not getting the recognition that Roger Ebert is. He doesn't have a Pulitzer Prize, for instance. So, so you have to see where these two guys could clash. And when you're forcing them together, like two opposite pole magnets that do not want to go, uh, you're going to have a lot of volatility. It seems like uh, I wonder if like Roger Winnie Pulitzer allowed them to be a friendship because like otherwise it seems like Roger just would have been blown away by everything about Gene Siskel and but him being able to be like, oh, yeah, well, how many he Pulitzers he got was yeah. like allowed him to, you know, that was his um, that was him. Uh, is this you know, ace, ace in the sleeve, right? It was he's pulling out his pull out Voltron sword. It's like, it's totally. your ass now. It's like, okay, I've done, yeah, I've been a lion and you've been a lion and I turned into the robot and you grew big, but now I got the power sword and it's your ass. A Pulitzer was that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but wow, it's it's crazy to see it, you know? Because well, it's, it's like, a side that you saw elements of on screen. Like, they didn't really do a lot to camouflage this, but I always thought it was more of an act. I always thought it was more of like, we're going to get on screen Here's the thing. We've talked about this in the past um, in, in full transparency here. We've talked about, do we want to spice things up here by like trying to take two sides of an, uh, opposing opinions mm -hmm. and then just on air, on screen, taking those opinions and just smashing them together and see what happens. You know, one person vigorously defends one side, mm -hmm. the other person defends the other. It, it's, it's never felt honest to me to do that. And so I always assumed that there was a bit of that going on with the uh, at the movie stuff when I'd see them really get into it. Especially and go at each other personally. It right. It, it happened almost every episode, right? Because right. it's not that we don't have passion disagreements. We just had one on The Last of Us sure. uh, feedback episode a couple weeks ago. But like the fact that they 
frequently clash so many times about so many yeah. like it's just like them fighting over Benji the hunted so funny so funny <laughs> oh my god you know like these, uh-huh. these stupid animal films and uh but but yeah and it, it I, doesn't I like it, come it down doesn't on either side on that but yeah, but it doesn't seem like it was, it was like to your point, like manufactured at all. In fact, yeah, after the cameras cut, it was well attested to by a lot of the speeds they interviewed that they would continue to like yell mm-hmm. and scream and like try to score points because it's it wasn't them trying to create entertainment. They were genuinely trying to like if I want to get this guy to yield, I want to get him to recognize that my way is the superior way and my thought is mm-hmm. the superior thought and my create and even down to like creative choices on the show and. The other thing that's well attested to to stuck in Roger's craw his entire life is that it was Siskel and Ebert and not Ebert and Siskel. And <laughs> I have a coin seen, flip. Yeah. And I've seen him tell stories where it's like that was him like being magnanimous. So like, oh, there's this younger guy and I've got more hmm. credentials and I've got the Pulitzer and but sure, let's flip. And it's like as soon as it landed on Ebert, it's like the ultimate like, oh, fuck. I yeah. no, I really wanted to be Ebert and Siskel. I really and like and now I can't. I can't go back in my, you know, and right. like that must have like also I, I think like in Gene's mind, I wonder if he knew that, like if he's the one who suggested the coin flip, because he knew by all rights it should be Ebert and Siskel. Mm-hmm. And he's just such a maniacal competitor. He's like, ah, yeah, he went from having a zero percent chance. To now it's 50 50 because Ebert's this this rube. You yeah. know, he's trying to be Magnaman and I and like, oh, my God. No, he definitely liked to get his goat. I mean, Siskel, uh, you know, in his own right, a very intelligent person um, could stand toe to toe with Ebert. And I think he enjoyed getting one over on him. They tell that story about him in the plane when he calls him up to the, to the cockpit and then makes him look like a fool because of it. <laughs> uh it's funny, but it also betrays like what a contentious relationship they had. The thing that stuck with me uh, throughout this documentary when they're talking about their relationship is how much it felt like older brother, younger brother kind of mm. relationship. Right. And that's where I kind of get around to, well, there must have been some kind of affection and love there, whether it was posthumous after Siskel died and, and Ebert realized it after after getting some space from it or what. But it felt like two brothers just going at each other, you know, and there's an obvious love there, but it there's, there's also a... competitiveness and yeah. and just like I, I don't want to be outdone by my younger brother and my older brother gets all the favor, you know, because he's getting to do things first and I'm jealous and there's just there's all that wrapped up in it. You see it. A lot of deep seated insecurity from Gene, because for whatever reason, it it seemed like he thought and maybe it was true that like. I am a package deal with Ebert, but Ebert's not a package mm-hmm. deal with me, right? Like, Ebert at any else. time could go to Entertainment Weekly with John Tesh and like, you know, get like this or get his own like Hollywood studio show and like take that leap to the next level because i you know he goes to can and i don't and here's and, the funny and thing that he would leave me with nothing because like if he took off like i couldn't like i couldn't eat as, right. as cisco i i couldn't just do this by myself and it's like a lot of it seemed like the mid stage of their animosity was cisco just being terrified that roger yeah. was going to take one of these larger offers and leave him with nothing yeah the funny thing though i think is I don't know that that proved to be true. I don't think Ebert was ever as popular as Ebert and Roper as he was as Siskel and Ebert. Oh, 100%. 
Because so, Roper never, like, never could do authentically what Gene could. That's what I mean. Yeah, they they truly he tried were a package thing, yeah. I think. But Siskel didn't view it that way, which was interesting to me. Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing that re- what seemed like to really get them solidified is when they would join forces against the powers that be. Like any time, like they liked each other a little bit more every time there's a contract negotiation or every time there was a big <laughs> dispute about like working days or new sets of because Rodney, Solidarity. Like, suddenly or suddenly Gene saw was like, oh, I like having this blue collar junkyard dog uh, <laughs> guy who's would go up to the CEO of a major publisher or, a, you know, a, a Disney corporation and say, fuck you, pal. We're Roger. We're 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 Siskel and fucking Ebert. <laughs> we're Ebert and, and Siskel. I whoops. <laughs> right, right. And we're going to and like the way the one uh one of their production managers discussed said that they are like the Siamese cats from Lady and the Tramp, you know, that they're just <laughs> attached at the ass. Uh, I love yeah, it. with like with holding tails <laughs> together and you know, and mm-hmm. like the, the, as they started making more money, be more successful, and they'd like, hello, boy, do you enjoy the stacks of money? Like, yeah, like I, I know, like once those insecurities faded away, it was just the love and affection and the years of work. And right, um, right. It's funny because like I, uh, it's so funny because uh, I've, I, it, it reminds me a lot of in a different way the MythBusters because you know those guys maintain like in fact they would always unfavorably compare themselves to right like. You know how like Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel always seem to hate each other and they fought and but in reality they're brothers and we're not like that at all. We actually don't like each other. We've never had a dinner together willingly. It's like we we respect we respect and admire each other, but we do not mm-hmm. like each other. Um, and that always seems sad to me that like I mean yeah it's cool in a different way, but it's like yeah it's like God that's that's really sad that you guys spent this time and accomplished this many things and you don't even like each other. Ugh. yeah. I think I've watched a lot of Adam Savage in in the ensuing years after that, and I think he's he's mellowed on that a little bit. He's like th- that post hoc sort of recognition of the affection that they did, they must have had, right? Well, to work I want to hear each Jamie other say for so it, long. Yeah, Adam might. Yeah, might. I, I, know. I want to hear James. <laughs> well, you know what? It turns out I just uh, uh, I see Adam as my little brother. I I don't know. I I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if Jamie yeah. would go that far, but uh, probably not that far. Yeah. We'll be right back with more Bald Move after this brief pause. And now, back with more Bald Move. Uh, God, there's so many great lines. Because that's the thing. Above all else, that's the thing. Is like I don't even know that Ebert loved movies until he got handed the movie gig in the Sun Times. And he turned his love of writing into that. And then, you know, because he had to sharpen he he because mm-hmm. it's not like he was the film guy in college. He was a newspaper guy. Yeah. Through and through a newspaper guy. Um, But for whatever, he's just just a wonderful writer. And some of the lines yeah. he has where he says, I feel my life slipping from my hands like a long silk scarf. Um that my days left are like money in the bank. And when they run out, I'm, I'll be repossessed. Like they're just like these really great turns of phrase uh, that he would flash out in his reviews and his essays. And um, I thought it was really a great detail that Leonard Cohen saved his life. That uh, him and Chaz right before he left By the delaying. hospital from the last the procedure, mm-hmm. they put on this. uh I'm your man. This like seven minute long cut of it and danced in his room 
And if they had put him in the wheelchair seven minutes ago and wheeled him out the front door, because he just like his suit, I guess the, the sutures in his neck just bust out and his jugular just started gushing yeah. blood. And had he not been in the level one trauma center, he would almost certainly have bled out. And that that, that was mm-hmm. an interesting detail that you know, his love of music and his instead the, the, the same thing that like Chaz was like f- intensely frustrated. I want to take my time and set up my music and find some way to find joy and meaning in this moment that she was so frustrated with in a scene earlier is the thing that ended up, you know, giving her another, I don't know, like weeks, months. I don't know how long uh, he had after that, but I thought that was fascinating too. Mm-hmm. We kind of talked around the ways that he meant a lot to different filmmakers and, uh, it was, you know, young filmmakers town. And we start with Martin Scorsese that like, you know, this is a guy that he saw in his first film, which now I'm like, that's the other thing. It's like I got to see all these early, early uh, uh, Scorsese films. But he calls him the he they thinks he's the American Fellini. Um, and he kind of like was kind of intertwined with his career and pushing him. And, and you know, you don't think of like Martin Scorsese being a young filmmaker, but he was once upon a time. Sure. And also that he had kind of lost himself in the 80s and gone really heavily into coke and was thinking about giving up, maybe killing himself. And the thing that kept him going was Roger and Gene personally inviting him to a Toronto film fest that, hey, we want to give you a, a career achievement award at the time mm-hmm. that he felt like he was just the biggest piece of shit. And he's like, well, I guess I'll still keep going because of these guys. And <laughs> yeah. then like the experience of like, he, so he gets back in and then like Roger kicks him in the teeth with his review of, uh, uh, yeah. Color of money, uh-huh. you know, uh, and how devastating that was this, the Scorsese, but like he kept on doing that a whole throughout his year and not just for the young people. Um, but, uh, he's also, um, like, like people that, you know, because of their backgrounds of like uh, making foreign films or because they're trying to tell like this, this one lady, uh, Anna uh, or Ava DuVernay, who I think she directed Selma just a couple of years ago, uh, her first film, um, which is I Will Follow, I believe how she's like, you know, I am this young black woman. I'm trying to tell this very particular story to my experience and my culture. And like, is anyone going to appreciate it? And her like weeping when she read Roger Ebert's review because he got it all, you know? And at this time, Roger had been married to a black woman and she puts that together. But I, I feel like the film tells us a story of like, Roger was kind of like at the right place in the right time to be this conduit of empathy and the like, you know, never say that like I a hundred percent get an experience, but he, could approach it like Ava said with historical context and cultural nuance and to try to, you know, engage this, this empathy engine. Um, yeah. That's the overriding word that comes to mind when I think of Roger Ebert is empathy. He's, he's got an empathy for the, for our society at large. He has an empathy for th- the audience that he's speaking to yes. the filmmakers themselves. And it comes through in every word he's written. That's, that's the thing I don't think has changed about him. Like, yeah, maybe he was much more of an asshole as a kid, uh, as a young man. And he kind of grew out of those phases, but I always think that core empathy was there. One thing I found inescapable when I was watching this is, 
how much well let me ask you this question how much do you think his background went into the more performative aspects of his existence in the last five years because when i saw him like inputting the speech and Mm -hmm. then his voice would start to say it and then he would gesture at the right times and he'd work like he's again his face from the lower Mm -hmm. from from the teeth top top teeth down is gone just flapping there um Mm -hmm. but he would like tilt his head and waggle his eyebrows and like he was so expressive um yeah. i kept on thinking of his reviews of like you know buster keaton and uh some of the silent and like you know his admiration of boris boris karloff's able to emoting through frame he had spent a lifetime preparing for this role like mm-hmm. he had absorbed enough acting that he was pretty fucking good at it with half of his tool completely erased yeah did you get so- any of that uh yeah I, I i certainly took note of his ability to emote without words um yeah i mean you could you could imagine that he has you know spent a life observing great actors and integrating that into his personality acting in the movie that is his life um as it were right and i think yeah. they even maybe maybe say that in the movie somewhere mm. uh in the documentary The other thing I found touching is that, you know, he talks about because you think, man, would if he could have done everything over again, would he have rather just died that first, you know, catastrophic thing like the, the three times he almost died in the hospital, you know, when he was relatively young and healthy. And um, but him talking about like, I am so glad I wasn't robbed of this third act because what an experience mm-hmm. it's been. You know, what, an, yeah. what, a, what, how much I've learned and how much I've grown by having all these limitations. And like, I could have died at a heart attack at 49 and missed all of this. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad I, I'm like, I thought that was staggering. And what a, what a testament to how adaptable the human being is that he could go from this larger than life, gregarious guy, jets setting around the world, uh, you know, doting on all of his grandchildren and, then have all that taken from him and his world shrink down and him fighting to build it out and keep going and him saying that like, I'm glad I got to do all that. That was a gift. Yeah. That's certain uh, resiliency that not many people have. I think I found it very touching. The interview they did with his granddaughter that mm-hmm. she was like breaking down, crying, thinking about the time she sat on the couch with the grandpa and like, you know, cause like, God, what would that, what an experience to sit down with Roger Ebert as your, his granddaughter and him like watch movies with you. And not just that, but like, you know, books and music and like, he just knew so much and was so engaging. And she's like, just honestly missed uh, the time she had with him. I thought that was Mm -hmm. really, really, really touching. Yeah. And walks with uh, one of his younger. Yeah. That they both, they were the only yeah as a grandkid i think mm-hmm. and it was like he was the, him and this other grandkid were the only guys that rose early on their vacations mm-hmm. and so they just both up at six o'clock in the morning walking the cities uh and getting yeah. into adventures Sweet. and mischief yeah um yeah i i miss roger ebert on a weekly basis uh he taught me a lot he gave me a lot of peace about things that i was worried about at the time and i just man there's a couple of interviews they had i really liked uh Werner herzog's 
Like <laughs> he's just so fucking passionate about everything. And he's just like, yo, Raja, he's a soldier of cinema, the walking wounded. Mm-hmm. The disease robs him of his voice and yet he plows on. It touches my heart very deeply. And you believe it. Uh, Martin I didn't Scorsese realize he, talk- he, he made a tribute film to Roger um, where he goes to Antarctica. Yeah, the one about the I yeah, I didn't know that because I hadn't you know I've seen a, uh, uh, my fair share of his documentaries, but I haven't seen the one about the glaciers and the ice tunnels and all that. Yeah, wonder um, I wonder if that's, that's another overt. one on my list of <laughs> things to see. <laughs> right, right. That Largent. Uh, uh, what was the um? Oh God, what did he get the pull? Oh, cries and whispers, the one he got the Pulitzer for. Sure. I call first Martin Scorsese's. I guess that's his first film. There's just a ton tree of life. I've never seen tree of life, but that's another one that I remember mm-hmm. Roger Ebert really being moved by, by the end of his life. Um, yeah. I've got a laundry list of things I need to watch to, to appreciate. And also like, man, after I went through the, um, the, the commentary that he recorded for, what was the one? Um, Citizen Kane, like, He's done like 20 different commentaries of the, of different films like Casablanca and Maltese. I got to I I need to track down and listen to every one of those because they're just they're yeah. fantastic. They're like his cinematic cinematis interruptus distilled. And it made me really miss that like man, someone should have recorded those. I should be able to yeah. go and for like a couple hundred dollars buy a Blu-ray of like these 5-hour sessions of individual mm-hmm. movies where he's breaking it down scene by scene like it's so much of that stuff is just gone and all you have is still black and whites of him doing it. But gosh, so much he, a man who made so much content left so much on the table too. Yeah, no, that would be amazing. I, I really love it. It's sort of a self self deprecating joke. He's making up on stage at one of those. Cause there is some footage from those things. Um, and they, they talk about, or he says like, oh, you know, over the years, there are so many things that we've discovered about these movies, whether they're actually there or not. And and that that line actually gives me a lot of confidence to do what I'm doing, because yeah. it says these things are open to our own interpretations. It gives us license to do so and not feel like we're foolish for bringing something to the table. And that's what he did. He brought himself to the table and that is the style in which I try to do these things. And I owe a lot of that to him. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like I said, I, when I was watching this and I've realized how self uh, unconsciously, I've kind of modeled a lot of the, what the style of what I do on what I read uh, of uh, his commentary growing up and just how, yeah. Uh, even like, I, it's, it's so weird. Cause like I've always, I thought that, Roger Ebert's favorite place to sit in the theater was the back to side of the the joint when he was a reviewer. And I guess I had gotten things confused. Roger like his official recommendation of where he liked to sit was like two thirds of like from uh, towards the back. He had some kind of relationship with the screen. That's as, where as I was wide prefer- as the screen is multiplied by two back. That's and 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 I always kind of rolled with that, probably because I got it from him. Like that's where I wanted to sit in a theater. But now, and when I was a more of a and I, you know, it's like those are harder to get. And but I could always get the back corner. And also, I wasn't right, bothering right. anybody with my cell phone taking notes. But that's yeah. actually where Gene. That's where Gene sat for oh. the, for those exact reasons. And it's like so funny that like 
in my civilian life, I watched the movies the way Ebert did. In my critic life, I watched the movies the way Siskel did. And how, like, <laughs> yeah, it, well, it's wild to me that methods he used to take notes, he just had a notepad and a pen, mm-hmm. which in a darkened theater, that's got to be tough. You got to just be familiar with your writing, um, intimately so. Well, then, I guess his style was he would write just in big letters, like a sentence, and then just rip it off and throw it on right. the ground. And then yeah, he would gather this. all these scraps of papers into and then form it into review later. But like, yeah, he and was his just... thoughts would be like, good luck, Charlie, or whatever. You know, yeah, it, it yeah, wouldn't yeah, yeah. be like he's writing his review on the spot there. Um, uh-huh. but, but I would think it would have to distract you because I'm even distracted by the few seconds it takes to type in a note to the point where i wish i could pause a movie you know um, i think that's why he did because he didn't look at it he just would would his yeah. eyes would stay glued to the scene and he just write in his big script and then rep it on then he would trust his own memory, you know yeah. vice grip mind and his ability mm-hmm. to understand his own shorthand and yeah and and that to me is a skill in and of itself right he's giving all of himself to that movie in that moment and that it, it's there's a skill to watching a movie as a critic that I think is, is overlooked by, you know, everybody who is on their phone it. half the time during a film. Right. right? And yeah, yeah. feels like, yeah, I watched the movie, but he really watched the movie. He, mm-hmm. he, there was nothing else on his mind. You know, Cisco could be in the back row there breathing down his neck <laughs> and, and G- literally, and Gene would just be watching the movie or, or sorry, Roger would just be watching the movie. And he never lost that like to his dying no. day. He was still watching like what they said, like six movies a week and was still able to be like transported by them. Yeah. And the way he could uh, hammer out, you know, 30 minutes, he could write a review of a film that was more oh, eloquent than yeah. I could ever hope to be. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and that, that's also like because also Chaz, I think she heard how that come out. She's like, you know, but it's not like he just banged everything out in 30 minutes. Like, you know, mm-hmm. some reviews he would come back for days and days and keep working like and reflecting on his thoughts. And famously, he redid a couple of his movies, you know, retrospective. Right. He's like, you know, I got this wrong. Um, this movie is better. This movie wasn't. It's like I because that's the other thing is like, I don't think how you feel about movies is static. Like, and I've had yes. that experience is like, uh, I saw a movie at 15. I felt a certain way. Saw it at 25, a certain way. Saw mm-hmm. it at 30. Like it just keeps, it changes. And, and sometimes it gets better. Sometimes it gets worse. But, mm-hmm. um, I like how Ebert would, would build that, especially when he got to the blog, when he could do a little bit more kind of detours through things. And, um, yeah, I just like I said, I I really miss him. I haven't found a place. I haven't found my go-to movie guy or gal yet. Um, I'm always on the lookout for for one, but uh Yeah, I miss Roger Ebert. Uh he was a giant in the field. He that's the other thing they mentioned that Roger Ebert at his death had been a critical reviewer for half of cinema's lifespan. Half of feature film life. Feature film. What what the hell does that mean? Uh, I think that. <laughs> I mean, means clearly they're saying talkies, like, yeah, uh, like the the Nickelodeon yeah. stuff where it was just like a dude riding a horse right. for a, two five seconds. But but yeah, I think or is it the talkie era? Because I thought it was they were talking about the silent era too. No, maybe maybe. He start, I, so I'm he starts certain. writing in the sixties. So through the two thousand. So that's a forty yeah, year career. 60s. I suppose so. No, I think you're right. It goes back to the talkies because that was like in the mid yeah. mid mid twenties. 
But that's still staggering to someone oh, yeah. could not to have that much grasp of of a, of an art form. And there's yeah. vanishingly few people like that left. Um, yeah. Anything else you got to say about old Roger? Nope. I'm good. You're a hell of a guy. He might have been an asshole, Roger, but you were our asshole. <laughs> and uh, I'll always love that about you. Uh, that's all we got to say about life itself. Um, if you haven't seen it and uh, you're uh, imagine, I, I hope I hope there's a whole bunch of retrospectives about Roger in the next in this next week, because I want to read a bunch of mm-hmm. them. Um, I highly recommend checking it out. It's a great film. It, uh, you know, and then the 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 essays that they name check and uh, towards the end of his life are just so his thoughts about facing death and whether he's afraid of it. His thoughts on, you know, dealing with not being able to speak or eat the things, you know, speak, eat or drink the things he enjoyed historically in life the most and and how he's found enjoyment. Like there's just they're just so life affirming um, a set aside his just opinions, which I admire. Just I don't know the way he approached life. It's great. And uh, I'm, I'm glad I got a, I'm glad I got exposed to him. I don't think I'd be the same person if I hadn't got turned on to Roger Ebert by laughing at him showing up chevy chevy chase on the tonight show <laughs> that was that was a work shoot that was not con- spontaneous sure. right yeah yeah no, he right. Knew i think what a lot was happening behind him I, th- I think a lot of johnny carson stuff they had kind of worked out in advance but uh all that that's all it. that late night sh- shit they do yeah um a lot of a lot of live action hollywood still scripted turns out uh that's it that's it for life itself uh definitely check it out um Watch, go back into Roger Ebert's archive, read one of his great movie reviews, do something, do something to celebrate the man this week. Uh, We'll see you on another prestige film soon enough, I'm sure. Uh, Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See you at the movies.